All right, if you will bring your conversation to a close. Take a seat. My name is Zach Daniel. For those of you who haven't gotten a chance to meet yet, I'm the lead pastor here at Antioch Dallas. Uh, excited to be with you today. My family, we have been on vacation over the last week, and we are thrilled to be back and be with you. We're going to be continuing our series in the book of Hebrews called Developing Resilience. Developing what? Resilience. Developing what? That's right. And the reason that we're trying to develop resilience by going through the book of Hebrews is because we all need resilience. We all know that life is hard. If you don't know, now you know, right? When we face life's losses, it's letdowns, the lows of life, as we have experienced so many of those, particularly over the last 18 months, as we've faced those, we've needed to find a deeper inner strength a resilience to help us navigate the trials and temptations of life and stay faithful to Jesus in the process. We're going to continue that today, focusing on that, and we're believing that as we go through the book of Hebrews, that God will do what he is so faithful to do, that he will breathe on his word, and he will bring resilience into our spirits together. So as we're studying, we're not just trying to learn some information. We are meeting with the living God. And the Holy Spirit wants to minister to you today, and he wants to bring greater spiritual strength, greater encouragement, greater hope, greater resilience for the trials and temptations that we all face. So we're going through the book of Hebrews. We're taking nine weeks to go through it. Today is week three, and I want to invite you to meet me in your Bible at Hebrews chapter three. Hebrews chapter three, we're going to start in verse seven. Hebrews 3, starting in verse 7. Now, uh, while you're turning there, next week is going to be a very exciting Sunday for us. Part of our vision or what we're focused on this year is being a church for the city. And one of the goals that we believe the Lord was calling us to, to pursue this year was the planting of another church here in the Metroplex. Another transformational environment for people to encounter Jesus, learn to practice his ways, and build his kingdom. Uh, that church, Antioch Lake Cities, uh, the team has been working really hard, led by Jeremy and Carol Lee and their family. You can see them. Uh, they are focusing on ministering to people who live in Garland, Rockwall, Rowlett, Saxe, Mesquite, around Lake Ray, Hubbard, Antioch Lake Cities, and they are getting ready to do their public launch. They're getting ready to go public. They've been working behind the scenes, and next week, we are going to celebrate them and send them out as a church. Now, this is a big deal for us. You may have cheered for your football team yesterday. If you won, if you scored a touchdown, you may have been so excited. You may be cheering for whoever you're pulling for today uh, as you watch the NFL. But man, planting new churches is, is bigger than any touchdown that will be scored. This is what we celebrate because what it means is a new place where the Jesus is being lifted up. New people being knit in, new lives being transformed, and this is the heartbeat of our church. So we're celebrating that next Sunday. So when you come next Sunday, come ready to celebrate. And then you probably know, but if you're new, you may not. We are part of a global family of churches, the Antioch Movement of Churches. There are around 50 in the United States, another 100 or so overseas. And on October 4th through the 6th, October 4th through the 6th, we are coming together as a broader church family, partnering together to pray and to fast and to seek God for breakthrough, both here in our city 
and then our nation and the nations of the earth. More details on that to come, but I want you just to, to write down, okay, October 4th through the 6th, we're going to be taking time as a church to pray and to fast and to seek God alongside our other Antioch churches uh, as we believe the Lord for breakthrough uh, as we head into the latter part of this year. All right. Okay, so Hebrews chapter three. I also want to encourage you as you have your Bible out, uh, pull out your phone or whatever. I want to encourage you to take notes. I repeat this somewhat often, but I want you to take notes, not so that I feel good about what I give, although uh, that does make me feel good. But <clears throat> what I've realized is when we take time to write down what God is speaking to us, and as we study God's word, God wants to speak to you. Those words are so incredibly valuable. This week, I've been going back through some old journals that I have where I've written down notes from sermons, notes from Bible study, notes from times of prayer over the last number of years. And I can't tell you how faith building it is to go back and see, oh, man, God spoke that to me then. And that was so helpful for the road ahead. I didn't know it at the time, but it is exactly what I needed. And so many times I'd read it and be like, oh, man, if I had only remembered that thing that God has spoken to me, that would have alleviated so many problems. But I forgot, right? And it's those notes and being able to go back to what God has written. It was said of Mary, the mother of Jesus, that she treasured the words of the Lord in her heart. And I want us to be a people that treasure God's word in our heart, carry them and let them guide us as we go. So I want to encourage you, Bible notes, we are Hebrews chapter three. Our topic for today on developing resilience is we develop resilience through giving and receiving encouragement. We develop resilience through giving and receiving encouragement. Hebrews chapter three, starting in verse seven, the author uh, transitions and he says, so as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. During the time of testing in the wilderness, when your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. This is why I was angry with that generation. And I said, their hearts are always going astray. They have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers, start at verse 12. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another as long as it's called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Now, I know that we have many seasoned saints in our church who are deeply familiar with the Lord, the book of Hebrews and the flow of scripture. But I also know that each week we have people who are new to faith, exploring faith, growing in their faith. And so we're just at different places with our familiarity with Scripture and with the book of Hebrews in particular. And so uh, as I say this, I just want to say for all the people that are learning and you're figuring it out and you're still piecing it together right here, the author, of the last two chapters has been focused on lifting Jesus up on exalting him, on helping them develop resilience through paying attention to Jesus and receiving help from him. Now he makes a turn. He goes into a flashback. And if you don't realize he's flashing back to a previous story, this part of the text is so confusing, you'll get lost. And I don't want you to get lost. So I want to make sure you realize just like your favorite movie that has multiple parts and they'll flash back to a previous one. He's flashing back here to a story 
that would have been very familiar to his original congregation that he was writing to. He was writing to a group of Jewish background Christians, people who had grown up in the Jewish culture and faith and had realized that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is Lord and had committed to following him. He's writing to them and and they would have been so familiar with this story that he's flashing back to because it was a part of their heritage. It was one of their foundation stories. It would have been as familiar to them as they heard it as if I told you about the American Revolution or that battle at the Alamo would be to us, where you're just like, oh, I've heard that story since I was a kid, right? He's flashing back to a familiar story to them. It may be a little unfamiliar to us because obviously we don't live in that time period or from that background necessarily, but he's flashing back to a familiar story. And he's referencing when God delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt and brought them or was bringing them into the promised land. They had been enslaved in Egypt for over 400 years under Pharaoh. It was a bitter, harsh, cruel, and crushing slavery. And God working through Moses had delivered his people and he was bringing them into a land of promise. So it wasn't just about getting out from slavery, but it was about what God was bringing them into. This land of promise, this land flowing with milk and honey, a land described as a land of rest. That's where he wanted to bring them. Now, there was a journey along the way. It wasn't just snap your fingers and you're there, right? They had to travel through this wilderness. They, they, they had gotten out from Egypt, but they weren't where their final destination was. They were in process, and they had to travel through this desert-like wilderness. Think of the Middle East, and they're going through this wilderness, and along the way, they are facing all sorts of trials and all sorts of temptations. They have enemies that are coming against them. They have obstacles to their journey. They come up to situations where their source for food and their source for water, the things that they were used to, had been disrupted. In fact, their entire life had been disrupted. Nothing that was familiar was in front of them. Everything was new. I think we can relate to a time where life has been so disoriented that it feels like we're in a wilderness. Well, that's where they actually were, but it's also an incredible metaphor to describe what they were going through emotionally, psychologically, physically, spiritually in that time. And the author is flashing back to that story because he's wanting his audience, this this Jewish Christian background church, he's wanting them to think about the story of their ancestors to think about the story of their people from before and to learn from their mistakes. Because you see, that journey where God brought his people out of Egypt, they, in the midst of the wilderness, in the midst of the trials and the temptations, they drifted from God. They turned from God. They hardened their hearts. They ended up living for a generation in the wilderness. They couldn't go into the destiny God had for them. Because of how they stewarded the trials and temptations, they they needed resilience to stay faithful to God so they could enter into what God had for them. And the author is telling this story because he is seeing the potential for the same thing to happen in this early church. I believe it's Mark Twain who said that history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And the author here is seeing a rhyme in history. He's saying, hey, I remember what happened to our ancestors. And I want to make sure that that doesn't happen 
to us, speaking about that early church. It's such a great life lesson. How many of you know that the losses of a previous generation have the power to be lessons for a current generation so that we don't repeat the same things that happened before us? We have to be aware of them. So he's sharing that because he's saying things for these Jewish background Christians. They, too, have experienced God's freedom, not from Pharaoh, but from the power of sin. They, too, were on a journey, not through a literal physical wilderness, but they were going through a spiritual wilderness, a time of deep disruption as their lives were disrupted. How are we doing on the mic? There we go. Their lives were disrupted. Their lives have been disrupted. Uh, Their their income system, the way they had gotten resource was disrupted. Their property had been seized. They'd lost their jobs. They had been physically persecuted. They They were thrown in prison. They were facing obstacles, trials, and temptations at every turn. They were in a wilderness. God had moved in their life, but they weren't to the final destination. They were in between. And so they, as they heard this and they heard, oh, the, med, the, the wilderness, yes, that describes where we are. And the author wants to make sure the same thing that sabotaged their ancestors doesn't sabotage them in the wilderness, that they would find the resilience they needed, the spiritual strength they needed to stay faithful to God through life's trials and temptations. Why are we looking at this story today? Well, I believe this is not just a timeless word for God's people, but this is a timely word for you and for me. We, too, have experienced freedom, not freedom from Pharaoh, but freedom from sin. If you're a follower of Jesus, he has set us free from the power of sin, and he wants to bring us into a new life, a new kingdom, a new place, a land marked by rest. Right. That kingdom is here and now we're seeing and experiencing it, but it's not complete. It's not in its fullness. Right. We still live in the pain and the brokenness and the trials and the temptations of this world. And over the last 18 months, if there is a metaphor that can describe where we've been, it is a wilderness as a people, let alone all the trials and temptations that we go through individually that we go through as individual families or from different backgrounds and nationalities. But as a generation, we have been in a wilderness, period. And I believe the Holy Spirit wants to help us see here how we can avoid some of the losses that the people of God in previous generations took so that we could learn from them, so that we could find the resilience we need, and we can make it into where God desires for us to be. So what I want you to focus in on is verse eight. Verse eight says, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Now, I love this verse. It's a little scary. The warnings of scripture are a little scary, but they're also very comforting because it helps you to see what do you need to know to avoid danger or to avoid failure or to avoid sabotaging yourself. And he's saying to this early church, I want you to remember not to harden your heart as you did in the rebellion. Were they in a rebellion? No. Was the previous generation, were their ancestors? Yes. And was he concerned that they too would turn from the living God because of the trials and temptations they were facing? Yes. And so he begins to speak to their hearts. 
He begins to speak to them about the condition of their hearts. And this is so important for us to remember is that hard circumstances can often lead to harder hearts. When you go through hard circumstances, when we go through trials and when we go through temptations, those are times where we are especially vulnerable, not just to things outside of us, but to our interior lives, the hardness of our heart, our hearts becoming harder. Interestingly enough, uh, this same word for harder right here is what medical professionals now use to describe the hardening of the arteries. So he's talking about hardness of heart at a spiritual level, but we can all relate to the dangers of having hardened arteries and what they do to our physical life. And I love this. It's so helpful for me because when I go through wilderness periods, when I go through trials and temptations, it is my external circumstances that are challenging to me, but there's this whole other dimension. I wonder if you can relate of the things going on inside of me as I go through whatever hard thing I'm going through. The mental, the emotional, the spiritual side of any trial and temptation is just as real as the actual physical thing that we go through. You guys remember back to Snowmageddon. I remember being a couple days into that thing and just being like, I don't know that I can take this. Like, I'm not built like I'm not built for cold weather. Like, I'm a boy from Texas. We can deal. Turn it up to 110. We'll figure it out. But you get cold like that. I was just like, but it wasn't just the physical cold. It was the mental. Like, is the power going to go out right now? Where do I find water? I remember going to Target and it was like zombie apocalypse as people fought for water. Why? Because of this fear that people had, this interior thing that was going on. As you've journeyed through COVID and all the disruption that our nation has faced over the last 18 months, I'd run out of time to go through it, right? There is an external trial and temptation going on. And there's a very real interior world for all of us that we're needing to navigate our hearts. And that's what he's speaking to here. And I love that because when something is broken, you need to make sure you get the right diagnosis. And for us to find resilience, man, there are so many things we can do. And I do think we need sleep. I do think we need to take your, you know, supplements, whatever miracle supplement you found. Take that thing. Take your essential oil. This is not medical advice. You're, you hear me wave offering on the essential oil. Uh, just do all those things. Monitor your sleep. Do your intermittent fasting. Drink your water. Do all that stuff. Great. Good. But also. Alongside that, I want to know, and what the scripture is reminding us is there's an interior battle, an emotional and spiritual battle, that when we're talking about resilience, it's not just that I get enough sleep last night, but it's about mindsets that I carry. It's about attitudes of my heart that when I go through trial and temptation can make my heart hard to the Lord. And what happened to the generation in the wilderness, their ancestors, the hardness of their heart led them away from the living God. We're going to get into that in a moment. It sabotaged them. It led them away from their destiny. It led them away from the good things that God had for them because they didn't tend to what was going on inside. Their focus was all about, hey, this food, this water, these enemies, this deal, this leader, all of those things. They didn't realize the battle that was happening inside of them. And the author here doesn't want these Jewish Christians to fall to the same thing. And the Holy Spirit doesn't want you and me to fall in the same way. But he's highlighting, hey, when you are going through trial and temptation, 
When you would describe yourself as in a wilderness, you need to be mindful, not just of the things going on around you, but what's going on inside of you. And for the ancestors, interestingly enough, it was what was going on inside of them that ultimately sabotaged them. They thought their enemies were the Canaanites. They thought their enemy was famine. They thought their enemy was drought. They thought their enemy was all the different things they wrestle with. What their real enemy was, was what was going on inside of their own hearts. And the author wants the Hebrews to see this, these Jewish Christians, and I believe the Holy Spirit wants us to see that as well. So danger, hard circumstances can lead to hard hearts. Now, why? Why is that? Because sometimes you meet people who come through very hard circumstances, and rather than having harder hearts, they have softer hearts. They have more tender hearts. Something has happened inside them where they say, I wouldn't want to go through that again. And at the same time, I wouldn't trade that for anything because of what happened inside of me. Why the difference? Why do some people become harder in their heart and some people, the best version of them comes out? Well, if you'll look in verse 13, we'll see why our hearts can get hard in hard circumstances. Verse 13, he says, but encourage one another daily as long as it's called today. We'll get to that in a moment. Focus on this so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So when he's talking about our hearts becoming hard in hard circumstances, we are particularly vulnerable when things are hard. When we're in trials and temptations, we are particularly vulnerable to the deceitfulness of sin. And when we think about sin, it is a nuanced term in the Bible. I don't have enough time to go into all the angles of it right now. But for our conversation, for this study, I want you to think about sin as a spiritual power. Not just an action, but a dark spiritual force that wants to deceive them. These Israelites, as God brought them out of Egypt, that wants to deceive the early church to lead them to turn away from God, to give up, to cash out, and that sin wants to deceive you and me, making our hearts hard in the process. How in the world does sin deceive us? Well, the story of God's people coming out of Egypt gives us some, it's not exhaustive, but gives us a number of examples of, okay, if sin is deceptive, what are its tricks? What are its schemes? Because I haven't met a person yet who likes to be deceived. I mean, maybe there's one person out of a thousand. I don't know. Most people, if we know we're going to be deceived, we go the other direction. The problem with deception is it kind of seems like the truth and you don't really know till you're in the middle of it. And then you're like, I was totally deceived. So how does sin deceive us? Number one, the deceiving power of sin distorts our view of God's character. So when we're in a trial, when we're in a temptation, when we're in a wilderness, you start having these thoughts. This is what the Israelites would have had. If God was really with us, would this be that hard? Like if God was really with us, I mean, I'm tired enough after moving from Egypt and getting out of that place and living under that. And now we got to go into this wilderness and then there's all these enemies and we don't have food and we don't have water. Like, shouldn't this be easier? God, are you really good? Are you really there? In fact, they get into the mental space, the deceptiveness of sin kind of breathes into those things. They get into the space where they're like, you know what? I think God brought us out here to kill us. Now, we read that story 
thousands of years later and we're like, say what? Like God brought you out from Egypt, miracles, signs and wonders, like brings you out. Red Sea, haven't you seen Pharaoh, Prince of Egypt, the movie guys? Come on. He's bringing you out. And you're thinking that God's bringing you out here to kill you. But that's where they get to. The deceiving power of sin distorts their view of God. Christina and I, one time we were on a ministry trip uh, and it was a six week trip and we were going and blowing. It was awesome. At the end of it, we did a little fun uh, excursion. Uh, It seemed fun at the time. It was to go on camels overnight into the Sahara Desert to spend the night. Now, someone suggested this to us. I, I, I got into it. I was like, I think I've been deceived. Like, why did I sign up to go stay in the desert? But I did. So you're riding the camels out there, you're in the desert, and you get out there, and there's only sand as far as you can see, sand and sky. The wind comes behind you and blows your tracks. Whatever tracks were left in the sand is gone in a moment. And so you want to talk about distorting? It's like, I, don't, if, I better stick with this guide because if I get lost here, I am done. Like we were miles in any direction from any sort of help. It's distorting, right? The wilderness can be distorting, and sin comes in there, and he distorts who God is. And for these Jewish Christians, sin is coming in there in their generation. And he's saying the same thing. He's saying, man, if God was really with you, would this be that hard? If God was really with you, would all these people be against you? If God was really with you and good and he was leading you to a place of life, like, would you have lost your job? Would you have been put in jail? Would you have had your property taken? Would you have gone through all these hard things, these people getting mad at you? Would it be this hard? Right. And in those thoughts, which are Normal thoughts that we all have, if we're honest, right? Sin just whispering in there. You know, you're right. You're right. If God really was good, he wouldn't, he's brought you out here to kill you. He's brought you out here to kill you. So often in trials and temptations, we can have that same mindset and sin can whisper to us. Maybe it's not as drastic as God's brought you out here to kill you, but it's close. God's left you. God's not that good. I don't, back then, maybe, but right now, where is he? Would it be this hard, right? And I bet, even as we read through this passage, right now, real time, I bet that deceiving power of sin is whispering things in our minds. Because I said with this passage long enough to know, so many times we read this, and the way that we take it in is, okay, I need to avoid sin, so that God doesn't get really angry with me and cast me aside, kill me, leave me, say, you're in the desert forever, right? Because you read about God's anger, and and so then it feels like God's like the the angry parent, which you don't want to set him off. He's like Hulk in the Marvel movies, like don't make Bruce Banner mad, like just don't do that, or else he's going to snap and come after you. So often we can read this. And so sin becomes like an arbitrary standard, particularly when we're in a trial or a temptation. And we begin to view God as our enemy. It's getting quiet. I hope this is sinking in because I've seen this a thousand times. We can view God as our enemy. Even when we read this right here, we can be like, oh boy, I hope I don't do whatever it is that makes him so mad that he swears in his anger, you know, at me and I catch the back of his hand. I catch the Hulk, you know, the Hulk rage. And it makes God our enemy and sin an arbitrary standard. What's going on here in this story 
is not God saying, hey, follow me or I'm going to kill you. What's going on in this story is God is saying, follow me or sin is going to kill you. Right? Sin is not an arbitrary standard. Sin is what destroys us. It's what corrodes us. It's what twists us into people that we were never meant to be. It normalizes things that lead to death. It makes them seem like, oh, this is right. Sin destroys people. It unravels people. It unravels marriages. It unravels families. It unravels futures and destinies and communities and generations. God is not our enemy. Sin is our enemy. And sin's deceiving power. It twists it. And it's like, you got to watch out for God. Don't make him angry or he might smack you. We stop worrying about sin and we're just kind of like, oh, we live in this fear. God is like, no, 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 no. I brought you out from Egypt. Sin, turning from me, choosing to go your own way, figuring it out on your own terms, that that is what is going to kill you. I'm trying to save you. I'm your redeemer. I am your savior. And even when it says God got angry and he swore that they would remain in the wilderness, it was after 40 years of them saying, God, we don't want your way. We want to go back to Egypt. And eventually, like a, God is like, that is not what I want for you. But I'm going to let you do this. And my hope is that you doing this allows you to see and let go of the sin that you're clinging to, that you would return to me with a whole heart. God's discipline like a good parent, is meant to be restorative. His desire is not that they would just be stranded there, but his desire is to say, man, their choices are going to destroy generation after generation after generation. So I'm going to let them taste the thing that they've longed for, that they've asked for, that they've chosen time and time and time and time again. I'm going to let them taste the consequences. The great parenting sage Matthew McConaughey said this about parenting. If you actually care as a parent, it's very hard. I'm editing it for the church. It's very hard. It's much easier to just say yes to everything. It takes strength to say no. And God is saying no. That sin that you guys are holding on to that you don't think is your enemy, right? it is going to destroy you, whether you're in the wilderness, you're in Egypt, or you're in the promised land. And I'm going to let you have what you want, that it might, you might learn and you might let go and the next generation might be restored rather than destroyed by the sins of their parents. So God is not our enemy. God is our savior. And sin wants to distort that. The second thing that sin wants to distort in our lives is that going our own way would be better for us. If you read through the story of their ancestors, they get into the wilderness and their repeated thing is they start thinking it would be better to go back to Egypt to go back to their own way. Now we read it and you're like, no, 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 guys. You were crying out in the bitter slavery of Egypt. Your people endured a genocide against your children. You were sexually abused for generations, right? You were worked by a hard taskmaster. And now in the midst of this trial and temptation, God, the one who freed you, who promised you a lamb flowing with milk and honey, you're seeing that, but you're like, you know what? I don't know, Egypt, maybe it wasn't that bad. And we read it and we're like, are you serious? But we see this happen every day with the deceitfulness of sin. It comes in and it whispers, you know, is it really worth waiting for that thing that God told you to wait for? Amen. Is that, is that marriage that you're in 
that just feels like, gosh, can we not catch a break? And you start to think, man, maybe I would have been better and maybe I'd be better just to kind of take things into my own hands. That integrity you fought for at work that you feel like gets passed over, over and over and over again, maybe, maybe it'd be better just to compromise, right? And we start to have those thoughts that maybe it would just be better on our own. And you can watch the Israelites and what the, the author of this book wants the Hebrew church to see and wants, Holy Spirit wants us to see is, you know, we sit back and we're like, no, you don't go back to Egypt. Are you serious? Right, but so often we get deceived by sin and we start to think, man, it would be better off. if I just kind of did it my way. Number three, the deceiving power of sin divides us from healthy relationships with God's people. So in the midst of they're disoriented about who God is, they're disoriented about what they want, then they get disoriented about what group they need to be a part of. And they all get mad at Moses and say, you, who makes you our leader? And they start to fight within themselves, right? And so sin begins to divide them. Now, a place you don't want to be divided is in the wilderness, going against enemies. Like, you need people. You need community. When we're in a wilderness, we're in seasons of trial and temptation. One of the ways that sin deceives us and it leads to hard hearts is it's like, those people don't understand you. You can't talk to them about this. They don't see value in you. They don't care about you. Who are they to say this? Why not you? And we start to have these attitudes and these heart postures. Our hearts get hard. and We pull away from the very people we need to help us to see clearly, to make it through the trial and temptation. Now, if we stop there, man, this would be a heavy sermon. But we're not stopping there because scripture doesn't stop there. Look what he says in verse 13, though. He gives us the remedy. He gives us the antidote. He gives us the secret to developing the resilience we need to have the spiritual strength for the trials and temptations we face. For our hearts not to be hardened, he says, encourage one another daily. Encourage one another daily. Encouragement is how we overcome the deceitfulness of sin. And we need people in our lives giving and receiving encouragement. And when that happens, our hearts, instead of getting harder, get softer. Encouragement softens our hearts. This is so important. I was struck by this last year, uh, just about the power of encouragement. And I decided to run an experiment. I said, I am going to encourage three people a day. And I'm just going to do this for a while and see what happens. So I would text people or call people or, or you know, in the height of COVID or hopefully the height of COVID. I don't know. Please don't get mad at me about that. You know what I mean. We're all trying to figure it out. And so if I'd see people, I would try, try to do three a day. Some of you will get that later. Um, trying to do three a day. Here's what I found out. We are starved for encouragement. People are starved for encouragement. I was just so surprised at people that you think, oh, I'm sure they're encouraged. I would send them something. And you could tell it hit a really deep, deep place within them. I've heard so many leaders in so many different areas say that they're so starved for encouragement. How many of you know your bosses and your managers at work? I, I don't, they're starved for encouragement in this season. Your spouse, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, starved for encouragement. Your kids, starved for encouragement. Our neighbors, starved for encouragement. We're in an encouragement famine. Second thing that I learned uh, in, in that experiment was when I encouraged someone else, it helped me fight my own hardness of heart. 
because it forced me to see them how God saw them, and I began to see what God was doing in their life, and then it just built my faith. So not just receiving encouragement, but the practice of giving encouragement made my heart softer to the deceiving power of sin. Third thing, it built my faith because I can't tell you how many times I heard people say, you have no idea what this meant to me and how it speaks to me right now. Through simple encouragement, I could show you my list, I wrote them down. They were not these incredible like works of art. They were simple encouragements, but God used them because it's that encouragement that softens hearts. I also made an experiment to see about receiving encouragement. What I learned, I'm very bad at receiving encouragement. Maybe you are too. I find that some of my mindsets related to humility, when people would encourage me, I would deflect it right away. Encouragement literally means to put courage in someone. Encouragement is a ministry of the Lord. God is an encourager. And when we automatically deflect someone's encouragement and we explain it away or we just kind of pass over it, right? When we do that, we rob ourselves from the spiritual nourishment that God wants to give us through literally putting courage in our hearts. So I, I tried to start writing down encouragements and reviewing them. And I found that as I wrote them down and reviewed them, my spirit began to feed on them and not an unhealthy level of pride, but a godly being built up in my spirit, a godly softening of heart would happen as I reviewed the encouragements. So church, as a community, the meat from this sermon is actually not right now. It's what we do with what we've heard. It's us taking this and saying, okay, I want to watch out for sin's deceitfulness. I want to build resilience through God's appointed method of giving and receiving encouragement, and that we would practice that as a church family. So two places we're doing that. One is right now, we're going to have a time of ministry, so if the worship team can come forward, they're going to lead us in this amazing song about hope, because I'm believing that the Lord wants to bring fresh hope in our midst, and if you need encouragement today, if you're weary and feel numb and feel at the end of just like, I just, man, I am so tired. I'm so spiritually tired, so emotionally tired. I want to invite you to come forward. Our staff, our overseers, our prayer team are going to be available. In fact, if y'all can go ahead and come on forward, be available, and we want to pray and believe the Lord to move in power. Second way that we practice encouragement is in life group. This is one of the primary ministries of our life group. We take intentional time to encourage one another. So whether you're thinking about a life group or you're in a life group, man, let's live out being a place that gives and receives encouragement, that we might be people with soft hearts, we might be people with a deep level of resilience, and that we might walk into all that God has for us in the midst of the trials and temptations, that we would be a people, not that get hard hearts and hard circumstances, but that we would be a people that might say, I don't ever want to go through that again, but man, the gold that that brought out in me and others through this. It's worth every penny. So I'm gonna pray, and then we're gonna respond. I wanna invite you to stand. Jesus, thank you that you're an encourager. Thank you that you see our real needs, Lord. You know every need in this room. Thank you that you wanna soften our hearts away from the deceitfulness of sin and the hardness that develops, and you wanna breathe fresh hope in our midst, Lord. Holy Spirit, would you come and would you be our healer? Would you be our restorer? Would you be the one who lifts our head? In Jesus' name, we're asking for the power of the Holy Spirit to move across this congregation, whether in the room or online, that you would move, Holy Spirit. 
that you would bring the encouragement that we all need and you would move through your people to give and receive encouragement. In Jesus' name, amen.